Welcome to the East Bay's best podcast, The Capstone Conversation. This is a show that interviews political, government, and community leaders in Alameda, Contra Costa, and Solano counties. We look at what is going on in your city, how are we developing things economically, and where are we going from here? I'm your host, Jared Ash. Capstone Conversation. Today, we're going to talk to Ron Gerber, who was Economic Development Director in five cities. We're going to cover a lot in here, so I thought I'd break it down. We're going to talk about creative financing, how to develop P-bids and P3 models for cities, how you should actually go about developing mixed-use space within cities, not just requiring retail to be on the ground floor, flexible zoning, how to engage your community to support economic development. And we're going to look at monetizing resources such as your right of way, your light poles and other items. And we're also going to talk about maximizing land and the shift to housing happening in the Bay Area. Hey, welcome to the Capstone Conversation. I'm your host, Jared Ash. Today, I'm joined by Ron Gerber. Ron is a former economic development director, and he has worked in a number of cities throughout the Bay Area, Emeryville, Novato, Walnut Creek, South City, and Vallejo. I like the mix that he's worked in. He's worked in high-end shopping. He's worked in places that are industrial cities, bringing in new biotech new technology companies, but also trying to keep their industrial base in those cities. Uh, we're going to hear an interesting perspective today on economic development. Welcome, Ron. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? Yeah, thank you, Jared. Thanks you for inviting me here today. Uh, yeah, sure. The number of cities you mentioned all over the Bay Area, very diverse, which gave me a lot of experience that I'm happy to share with you today about kind of lessons learned and best practices. And let's start chronology. So during the 90s, I worked for Emeryville for about 12 years. And it led to um, a lot of very innovative practices at the time. We were one of the first to have an affordable housing ordinance, strong public art component. But we were also had a city that was respecting its old industrial heritage, but also trying to transition to the next century. And we learned to do a lot of uh, special outreach and work with the community to get results. Like, for example, we got the first IKEA store in Northern California to go to an old steel mill site. I was in a couple of small meetings with Steve Jobs that eventually he and our team led to him moving the Pixar Computer Animation Studios to an old cannery site. Also, north of IKEA was an old industrial patch that had 52 chemicals of concern. That was, we had to go through the remediation site assembly. That eventually became an urban mixed-use town center with a multiplex theater, restaurants, and about two, over 200 housing units above the stores. It was mixed-use, entertainment, living, and a whole variety of uses. That really helped other businesses that want to locate there as well bakeries. And the other thing, it also, for example, when you have those businesses with strong biotech, that was also in Emeryville, it led to other biotechs coming in. It was a catalyst of that. Similar to uh, Pixar, 
That computer animation studio led to other animation spinoffs and businesses locating there. So that was something, a lot of good lessons learned there. But one of the, one of the cornerstones of all that was having community support. The community embraced transitioning from an old industrial enclave while respecting the businesses and the employment base. How do we hit, integrate that and transition with new uses, such as mixed use and housing? Then uh, from there, I uh, spent about a decade in the city of Nevada, 15 miles north of there, helping transition an old 600-acre military base handling field, but also helping to transform the downtown, which is also very exciting. And there were some good lessons learned there, too. And we want to talk about the downtown for a second. It was a very sleepy downtown, pretty much closed its doors at about 5.30 most nights. But there were some areas that really needed to be upgraded. And I know there's a lot of discussion at the time about what can we get to anchor the downtown to get things popping on our sleepy Main Street, seven block Main Street. A lot of discussion about maybe a movie theater or some other dynamic project. But at the same time, we listened to the community. They wanted a couple of grocery stores, Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, were at the top of their list. And we eventually worked with Whole Foods initially to become an anchor. And most people would say, isn't a grocery store kind of an unusual type of retailer you get to anchor downtown? And when you think about it, depending on the, what your downtown or what the community wants, it could be a tremendous anchor. It was at the far end, the east end of its downtown, and it actually led to a mixed-use project with Whole Foods as a ground floor and uh, over 120 housing units on top of it. But one of the things that was so important about a grocery store is in a sleepy downtown at the time, most of those small independent mom and pops closed around 5.30. And so the restaurants couldn't, they got by. But how can you extend the hours? You get an anchor like Whole Foods that's maybe open from 8 in the morning till 10 at night. All of a sudden, you've expanded something that's doing a 14-hour day instead of eight and a half. See, and a grocery store and like a movie theater or something like that, how often do you go to the movies compared to grocery store? So it creates a lot of dynamic project, daytimes, evenings, weekends, compared to movie theater, which may have weekends and occasional weeknight evenings. When you think about it, frequent shoppers, a lot of traffic, you're going to get a lot of people going to downtown that ordinarily wouldn't go there, especially after work on a weeknight. And all of a sudden, you're creating this dynamic new impact that downtown had never seen. And it turned out to be real, turned out really well. And once Whole Foods made an announcement that they were coming to Novato downtown, Trader Joe's came to another part of the downtown. And all along the main street, we started getting more restaurants, longer hours, but it had this whole kind of halo effect. And one of the things that was so important as this project, which was fairly dense at the time, the community did a letter writing campaign, very unique at that time, a letter writing campaign, not email, with different content to the letters mailed directly to the CEO president of Whole Foods. There was a lot of community support. And there was also public-private partnership element to the project because 60% of the site eventually became um, the city, actually put in 60% of the site. The city sold to the developer at appraised value, 
elevate a right away that we vacated to make the project work. Again, lessons learned, community support, public-private partnership, and thinking through clearly what the community wanted, how could that anchor the downtown? So it was win. From there, we'll just go quickly. I went over to the city of Walnut Creek for about five years and worked on a variety of projects. One of the focus, a focus was not so much the thriving downtown, which had over 95% occupancy, lots of great retail, but it, what had been ignored for a number of years, a 200 plus acre business park developed in the 1970s that had low vacancy and low rents. Once again, this led to a, a public-private partnership that was unique for Walnut Creek. And the project that I hadn't been involved for was formation of a PBIT, where it's a business improvement district that's based around getting support from the property owners. The formation of that PBIT led to all sorts of things happening because they had assessed themselves. The city was a, an important landowner in a business park with some of its public facilities. Was primarily private ownership. Initially, the city partnered with the Chamber of Commerce to form the PBIT, the planet, to do a strategy. And that eventually led to about a 73% approval rate of property owners to assess themselves. It led to a free shuttle service. It led to a dynamic mixed use project there called the Orchards, which let, which added restaurants, a grocery store anchor, and also some housing with a senior housing on the site. So it was a mixed-use development anchoring that property. That really helped get a thing, get a project going. It actually led to a branding kit. And then from there, I went to another old industrial city, South San Francisco, which is the largest biotech cluster in the country. And that was part of the culture there, was getting life sciences and enhancing it. And then lastly, I spent the last couple of years working on Mare Island, an old database in Vallejo. Uh, I'm kind of briefly going through roughly 30 years, touching on a few different locations to kind of give a sense of the variety of projects. And maybe we'll start a discussion, talk about some lessons learned and best practices. Yeah, thanks, Ron. That's a, a great background and your perspective, not just having done it in one town, but to do it in six towns that are different throughout the whole Bay Area really gives an interesting perspective. I want to talk more about the public-private partnership model. That comes up a lot with cities, right? Cities that are strapped for cash, uh, don't know how to develop. How? Let's talk about how they can utilize uh, creative financing in different ways to help spur economic growth. That's a really good question. Uh, I think working with People that are familiar with those types of creative financing programs like PBEDs, different smart cities, programs in the finance and they can bring are really important. And tapping those resources, because a lot of times maybe staff or councils, it's a question of they don't know what they don't know. And learning about things like uh, property-based improvement districts, how to use underutilized properties to create value and excitement, maybe mixed use in certain cases, but that's, I think, can be really important going forward. We and did a podcast recording with Ed Del Bacaro of TRI Commercial Real Estate, and he talked about how he went into a city meeting recently, and they said, 
we have four acres of developable land. And he mapped out for them how they actually have 14 acres of developable land in a small city. And it just shows you, you have more resources than you realize. I've worked with people that will upgrade public libraries, especially the smaller neighborhood ones, and bring in private capital to upgrade the library, but to, hey, should we put a restaurant in here? Does daycare make sense? Libraries are transforming the way we use them to be more shelter-friendly for really hot days in Oakland, right? Can you can this be the place that has air conditioning for people to come in who don't have air conditioning in their homes? There's creative ways that you can utilize. Yeah, and some communities, libraries are a good point. Some communities are using that great real estate to do a mix of uses, sometimes senior housing above it, because you also have a big uh, surface parking lot there. So there's a lot of assets. And I think like the Whole Foods site with uh, housing on top, nobody would have really thought at the time that you could vacate the street without impeding traffic, but make it easier because you're doing some widening along with the other street that was already existing street that was there, that sometimes public streets can become opportunities. Wait. Sometimes rail spurs as well. In old industrial cities, rail spurs that aren't in use anymore with underutilized parcels next to it. But it's sometimes a case you don't know what you don't know. That's why getting in touch with the right resources, develop plans is really critical. I'm a big fan of monetizing streetlight poles. They're wired, they have electricity, they connect. Why couldn't they connect to autonomous vehicle controls, gunshot sensors, security cameras, fire detection equipment, right? For early warning. You could use and monetize, cities can even monetize that. Like I want to emphasize, right? I've helped cities make money off of their light poles, putting them in for other use and paying for infrastructure. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, Jared, because I think most cities that I'm aware of, I think there are opportunities with better asset management. And a lot of times there's very unrecognized assets there, whether it's a rail spur an opportunity to vacate a right-of-way, streetlights, all sorts of unrecognized assets. And it casts a whole new light on asset management in ways that communities didn't recognize. And I think this discussion we're having now could be something that could be at a League of Cities or an ICMA panel. And I think it's very valuable, especially when it's tough to come up with financing. <laughs> And there's ways to bring, attract private capital. And in some cases, that may attract more property taxes in the area, or maybe more sales tax spinoff of other businesses growing. It isn't just that one and done at all. And a lot of these things aren't just one-time revenue. It's going to have an ongoing revenue stream. I just had a conversation with one city manager. They have a restaurant location, and they particularly want a local entrepreneur to, to do it. And... They just, it, it's a lot to invest in restaurant, the kitchen equipment, the tables, all of that, the silverware all needs to be bought up front. And I suggested to the city that they use some of their COVID stimulus funds as a loan at 1% interest to help this person. And like maybe the first year is free, right? Because a restaurant doesn't typically make a lot of money in the first year right. and structure it that way. They could recoup their money. If not, they can control the assets. And at first they said like, no, because the city attorney probably said no. And I said, but ask this, tell the city attorney that you're doing this and to work it that way. 
And then they're starting to look at it. It's not a lot of money. But oh, yeah. That's right. another good example of there. Maybe a lot of creative ways to look at projects like in the uh, Amtrak station in Emeryville, the city master leased the property from a private developer because Amtrak doesn't take over space for its stations with private entities. The city was the master lease of the station, which enabled Amtrak to do the lease. Now, all of a sudden, it created an old industrial area into a transit-oriented development opportunity. And the owner of the of the site that became the Amtrak station was developing offices nearby. And he had a parking structure. He strengthened the parking structure and added 112 live work units on the air rights of the parking structure, which also led to some new life science in a block away as well. So what's one of these cases of unrecognized assets? Can we look at a way to help this local entrepreneur, whether it's a mom and pop independent running a restaurant or converting a piece of industrial property to a transit-oriented developed train station, whether it's a right-of-way to get a grocery store there. There's all sorts of opportunities that are, again, unrecognized and can create some very creative asset management. Yeah. Well, just going back to that restaurant, right? I think the solution is going to be to partner with, there's a lot of great community engagement groups, NGOs in the area that focus on business and have C3 arms that can help be an intermediary. One of the things, Rowan, you talked to me about is a three-legged stool. Can you talk to me in economic development? What do you mean by the three-legged stool and maybe give us an example of it? Yeah, I think the uh, a three-legged stool is oftentimes when somebody said, we'd really like to see this happen. Well, who, who's saying that? What is the use? Because I think there's a three-legged stool is the desired outcome or project, whether it's a store or something else or life science. Is there a market demand from the entity to go there? Is it marketable? So is there market demand is one leg. Secondly, is it economically feasible? Will it work? Will it cash flow? Can they make a profit there? Maybe a demand for that type of business there, but is it economically feasible to build there? It's a tiny parcel. It's real, especially downtown, may be very expensive. It may not be economically feasible. And then thirdly, is our community support? What does the community feel about this? And sometimes, like the Whole Foods Project, it started with the community wanting it. As it turns out, there was market demand for it. It didn't have the third leg. It wasn't economically feasible. How to make it work? The specific plan for the downtown added an opportunity for housing, a vertical mixed use. Putting the housing on top made it cash flow. Essentially, the residential paid for the retail on the ground floor. So there's an example, started with community support, there was market demand, and the mixed use made it economically feasible. I like that example, right? It's getting a mix of things, and that helps the restaurants in the area that you were talking, were closing, or like the stores were closing at 530. Well, what are things that help restaurants? Foot traffic. So if you have 120 units, you probably have maybe a mix of one, two, two bedrooms mostly, right? So you're putting in 200 plus 300 people that are there and are going to want to walk somewhere in that downtown to eat, to shop, to do things. And that helps all the businesses grow more together. Absolutely. I mean, we wouldn't have got, or the city wouldn't have got all these 
other businesses, whether it was a craft brewery or a wine bar, or in addition to the gourmet grocery stores, another demand was a bookstore. Getting an independent bookstore, that wouldn't have happened, but for several years earlier, a Whole Foods coming there. Because once you get an anchor like that, it changes the whole outlook of the downtown and even in the whole community. Because one of the things when Whole Foods announced the residential brokers and agents were so excited because when you're talking about what do you have in your community to sell the house or buy there, move there, the idea that you have those kind of amenities, a new downtown with great places to shop, not just the large, but also mom and pop and independents that are running adjacent to the anchor store. So it has this kind of uh, ripple effect. Let's talk about retail for a second as as a component of that. There's this myth that post-COVID, retail's dead. I buy a lot of stuff online. And you mentioned into small independent bookstores, but in the last six months, I could tell you in Walnut Creek and Lafayette, I think Danville too, a, an into small independent bookstore all went out of business. Let's talk yeah. about where is retail headed? What are the trends for that space? Yeah, I think uh, quite about retail is keep in mind kind of changes every decade or so. <laughs> you know, started out with uh, malls years ago. Then you had the power centers, the big stores. Then you transitioned to lifestyle and then mixed use. And so it keeps changing. So it's how do you reposition some of those spaces that may be located in great spaces in the downtown. So it's understanding the market. I think commonly held belief now, one of the things that's hurting retail is e-commerce. Well, if you hit the rewind button 20 years ago, e-commerce has about the same percentage of market share retail sales as catalogs do. It's not much more than that. So e-commerce is roughly 11% of retail sales. During COVID, it went up to 14, which was a big hit. Now it's back down to 11, which means that roughly 90% of the sales don't come through e-commerce. And for some people, it's not going to be because you need access to credit. They don't have access to credit. And many people only pay with cash because those are the resources. They don't have credit cards. I think there's this myth that stores are dying because e-commerce. Not really. Retail changes, and especially with trying to understand e-commerce better. It's because essentially much of the United States was owned retail in the first place. Compared to developed countries like in Europe, we have four times the square footage per capita. And so there's going to be some changes. There's going to be downsizing. And that's not bad. When people say retail is hurting, well, Costco stock, what, 100% last year? And there's certain retail concepts that are building in the United States, putting in three stores per day on a certain end, kind of the more affordable value market. Three stores a day nationally. And that's a lot. But it doesn't mean you're building new malls or shopping centers or going into existing locations. Well, and you mentioned IKEA, the first store in Northern California. You helping recruit them to Emeryville. There's big news recently. IKEA opened a smaller store in downtown San Francisco, vacated something that, that another big company went out. And they said, you know what? We have a lot of customers here. Maybe we're taking away from the Emeryville spot, but we think we could better serve people here. And you're right on retail. Like I do buy e-commerce, but we also buy a lot of stuff 
Maybe we buy some clothing online, but we do it with stores where, oh, I go try on this shirt. Well, I want it in blue instead of green and they only have the green one in the store. So I'm still trying it on. I'm still like that mix of stuff, the target pickup. Gotta love that one. Well, also, I think there's still, for a lot of things, it's, uh, it's, it is experiential. People like walking around in neighborhoods or downtowns, and they want to linger longer oftentimes. It's not just make your big run and then leave. There is that shopping, but there's all sorts of different retail shopping experiences other than just the big run to one store or two stores. And that's, I think, understanding why downtowns have amazing futures. It's just trying to stay up with the market being in touch with the industry standards of what's going on. And I think this is a good time to touch about reality in planning. Oftentimes when cities are putting together like downtown plans and other areas try to revitalize areas, maybe it's an old business park. What's what I've learned over the years, lessons learned is really make sure as you're working through with the community and the planners and the planning consultants to make sure that, you're connecting with the real world of the marketplace too. Like in an area uh, near a BART station, one city was working with BART to put several hundred housing units on their parking lot. The planners had this whole up high-end retail proposed for the ground floor with units above. And the concern I had was, are you really going to get all these types of stores and food and beverage tents to come there? What I did is I went with the assistant city manager and planning staff member who's overseeing the project, working with the design consultants. We met at the site and I brought in retailers and retail brokers that work with the types of restaurants. And I had them look at the site. And these are all really great tenants that build a lot of traffic, well-recognized brands. And they looked at the site and they said, that's not for me. I wouldn't go there. And the planning was stunned. So it's that simple reality test. Food and beverage was not the key. On the other hand, a month later, the broker that represented one of the food tenants said, when is that space going to be ready? I have a tenant that I think would take probably 10,000 square feet. It just wasn't a retailer. By doing the reality testing in the private sector as you're working with the community to build it, getting that dose of reality, they called it flex space or ground floor commercial. That nuance to it, by that kind of reality testing, when you're working with the right folks that can kind of give you that sense when you're doing your final community plan, getting it peer reviewed. And you can do that for free oftentimes. So having a group of developers or Tenants look at it as you're developing your plan can be really have magical results, a bit much more re, uh, reality oriented. I just want to pick up on that. I've talked to a lot of cities and when, because at Capstone, we do business uh, attraction as part of our strategy for cities that we work with. And they also ask about this vacant mixed use space on the ground floor. How do we attract in? And I said, you got to make us part of the planning stage. And sounds like just for the same reason you talked about, because just because you built something doesn't mean it's, you got to mix in parking thoughts early. The coffee thing is just makes a lot of sense, right? The way you said it, 
do you need a lot of parking or do you need little parking? Just because you think it's walkable doesn't mean it's right. Is the height the right size to account for things? Now, what's the competition? Is there enough foot traffic? Why are people going to drive there if there's not enough foot traffic? And, And those are all things you've got to do. The other thing I'll say was I just had a meeting with somebody up in Solano County and we were talking about two shopping centers that are decent, but have a couple of vacancies. And I asked where are the brokers from, who are the brokers on them? They're out of San Jose. And somebody in Vacaville or Vallejo, you used to work in Vallejo. If they're represented by a broker in San Jose, that broker has a lot of other places in between that they are thinking of. They need somebody who's more regional to them. Get somebody out of Walnut Creek, maybe, or Sacramento, even. That's at least more, that's closer, that's more focused, who knows your area and do this test. I think you're right. Do the test in advance, get people in. I think that is brilliant. And I would suggest everybody really think through that as you're meeting with people. Do community meetings in advance. It doesn't have to be a full community meeting where you're engaging everybody, but engage the top five or 10 people that might have an opinion and help you develop it. They're not going to charge you to, to show up and do a walkthrough. They're right. going to want to be right. your partner. Getting this peer review process on the private sector perspective before you finalize your plan, or maybe you're in the early stages or halfway through, because you don't want to finalize a plan and find out later, oops, it doesn't work. And, and I, you know, so that peer, private sector peer review can be really helpful. Ron, anything else we you want to touch on today? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things we you know talked about lessons learned and best practices, but I do think there's a couple of things that are kind of unprecedented that cities are facing, and then how do you turn it? Is there a way to turn it into opportunities? I, I think we've all learned about the WFH, the work from home. I had a chance to get involved in the Urban Land Institute panel about these type of topics, and there was one developer that does a lot of housing in commercial areas. And there was a major office project where the tenant decided not to execute their letter of intent to lease. And it would have been several hundred thousand square feet. I think the landowner was Boston Properties. They brought him in because they recognized his ability to integrate housing well-planned in in commercial areas. And he put housing in there. Another case uh, a shopping center owner, major publicly traded shopping center, had a small neighborhood center that wasn't functioning well. They understand with proper planning, they turn into small horizontal, not vertical mixed use development, turn into a little village. Um, that same developer was asked by another office owner to take a look at a tired office property in a business park. And he also put housing in there as well. So it's not going to work every time, every location, but also with the mandate for housing, there may be a way to get win. And I think here's a case where you may be able to, if it's not currently zoned, you may be able to leave some of the pressure in some of the other neighborhoods, because if you have certain areas zoned for housing and you want to down zone it, maybe down zone that site, put that housing burden on a commercial property. That's Kind of some examples of trying to get a win where there's new unprecedented change occurring. Carrie Hillis from Moraga on episode one talked about how 
in that small town, they have two big shopping centers and one families owned it. They, they were one of the founding families of the area. They have a supermarket that's been there forever. That'll stay. They have a hardware store and maybe one other store as an anchor that have been there forever. And they're like, we don't want to develop this. We don't want to build housing. We don't want to put, we don't even want to like renovate it. Yet the other shopping center is like, hey, what can we do? And so they're saying like, hey, well, if you rezone us for housing, we'll build maybe a town square, right? Out of it. And it's just the foresight of finding the right owner, creating the flexibility in the zoning and working together um, to bring in all those elements you talked about around the housing development, around retail coming into a small town, just creating more of a vibe. And and that'll change the dynamics of that town in the end. Yeah. And I think you've made a a really good point as as one of the up here that you touched on, flexible land uses. In some cases, it says R&D. Another one is professional office zone. Well, there may be ways to look at Connect, which is currently zoned for professional offices only. You may not be able to get insurance companies or banks to go there or title companies or whatever, but maybe it's in an area where you could do some flexible zoning. So it isn't just maybe there's a way to get clean tech in an area. And I think that's, once again, getting peer-reviewed by the private sector before categorizing, pigeonholing one land use on one parcel. So that, like flex space on the ground floor, the BART housing belt, flexibility in the shopping center to add uses, depending upon where, where that center is and what the owner is thinking. Great. Ron, I really appreciate your time here. Thank you for joining us on the Capstone Conversation. And everybody, please hit subscribe. And if you like Ron's ideas, hopefully you'll share that with a friend. Thank you for joining us. Please hit subscribe today so you get the weekly updates of when we release the next episode. And in October, where this will air, we are giving away a $25 Amazon gift card to somebody that leaves us a five-star review and leave the comments, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon. Thank you for doing that for us. I appreciate it. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Capstone Government Affairs and Economic Development, a firm where I serve as managing partner. For more information, check us out at www.capstonegov.com and follow us on LinkedIn by typing in Capstone Government. Thank you for listening to today's show. Check out the show notes and for a full transcript, visit our website, www.capstonegov.com and follow us on LinkedIn by typing in Capstone Government or you can find me, your host, Jared Ash.